All right, so I was reading a book called <clears throat> The Treasure Principle this week that is an awesome, I mean, a really short read by, by Randy Alcorn. And if, if you guys were in connection groups last year, I think a lot of our connection groups went through that. I would recommend it. Um, but if you've read it, <clears throat> then you might remember the story of William Borden. He was a, a missionary, a young missionary in the early 1900s. And he came from an incredibly wealthy family, like one of the most wealthy families in the United States. And he was kind of the heir apparent to the family fortune, and, and he was going to take over the family business and live this life of wealth and fame or whatever. And then he met Jesus. And he decided to, to live for something different than that. And so at a, at a really young age, I don't remember how young he was, but he started actually a mission for homeless people. And he quickly became a leader at Yale University. He was incredibly smart, incredibly popular, but he used that influence to help people know Jesus. And he started a Bible study that essentially transformed that entire campus, that reached like that whole campus. He had all of this access to wealth, but he, he refused to live kind of extravagantly. He, he didn't even buy himself a car, but he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in kind of money at, at that time, which was even more, right? He spent hundreds of thousands of dollars going towards missions, and then he left to actually become a missionary himself. And he was on his way to the mission field when he was in Egypt, and he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. And there's this nondescript tomb somewhere in Egypt that says William Borden, and then right underneath it is a simple quote. Here's that quote. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. Guys, I want, that's what I want my life to be. Like that's, you know, you do those exercises and they're kind of cheesy, like in leadership classes or in school or whatever, where they're like, what do you want to be written on your tombstone, right? That's what I want written on mine. That's what I want us as a church to be true of us. But here's, and here's what I want you to see is that that, that idea, that, that living this, this sort of supernatural life, that the only explanation for what happens in your life is that you've met Jesus Christ. That's not just for missionaries. That's not just for like crazy people that give up their whole fortune and then go overseas. That's for normal Christians because we have a supernatural God that can turn ordinary people into supernatural people by the power of his spirit. And, and that's what I think Acts 4 is about. And really, I think like that describes all of the book of Acts. If, if you've been with us through this journey, you're hearing like all of the same stuff. Like God is supernatural. He can give you a supernatural life. Jesus rose from the dead. Repent. Because that's like the book of Acts just says that over and over and over again. But there's so many implications of those simple, crazy truths. And, and I'm hoping to pull out some more of those today. So I want to read a chunk, a good-sized chunk from Acts 4. I want to read this, this crazy story of the disciples who have become these incredibly bold men in their faith in Jesus. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up or flip open to it on your phone. You, you also can see it on the screen, but I love it when you follow along with me so you can see if what I'm telling you is actually true. So Acts 4, 1 through 13 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay, so again, you have this like crazy number of people that are saved in an instant. This is sort of a recreation of Pentecost, if you remember that story. We have it happening again. Verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, right, that's the difference, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under name, other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then verse 13, which I think is the best summary of what Acts 4 is all about. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that last part about that. They see this crazy thing that they can't explain in the lives of these disciples and they recognize that the only explanation was that they had been with Jesus. The explanation for this crazy life that they were living was that they knew King Jesus. Have you ever been around people like that? That you just get around them and it's like, oh my gosh, you've just been with Jesus. Like, like I don't, when I'm talking to you, I don't, I don't see you, I see him. Have you been around people like that? For me, the guy that I thought of was Jack Owens. Jack Owens was the guy that, that started this whole network of churches that we're a part of. And I've actually got a, a picture of Jack, I think. <laughs> so the reason I gave you a picture of Jack eating some food is because he looks exactly like Colonel Sanders from KFC. <laughs> Like, it's unbelievable. And Jack knows this. He would be fine with me doing this. There was a retreat that we had where literally the entertainment for the retreat was just Jack got up on a horse in a Colonel Sanders outfit and just rode around talking to people about chicken. And it was amazing, and he loved it. But Jack is this, like, just, like, kind man who, who this is what you notice when you talk to Jack, is it's never about Jack. It's always about you or it's about Jesus. Because he's, he's the type of guy that isn't out trying to make a name for himself, but he's just encountered Jesus and it's, and it's done something to him. And he, you know the people that just like actually believe the stuff that Jesus says? You know how like you think you believe it and then you watch someone live and it's like, oh, shoot. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Okay, that, that's Jack. And he heard the Great Commission 
And he just said, oh, maybe that actually works. And then he moved to Ames, Iowa. He invested in his life and a few people really simply just like, I just want to give my life to a few people. And then this movement that spread all across the country began because Jack just had been with Jesus and believed the Great Commission. He's, a, he's actually a very ordinary dude that very inordinate power has come from his life because he had just spent time with Jesus. I want to be like that. But that's hard, right? Like if, if, I'm, if I'm honest with you, like I'm thinking about this this week and I'm like, yeah, like I want that to be true of my life. If I'm honest with you, like I think a lot of the time I care more about what you think of me than what you think of Jesus. Like that's just true. I hate that. But like, I want you to think that I'm sort of capable or good at what I'm doing. I'm worried about this name that I'm sort of crafting for myself instead of this encounter that I've had with him and introducing you to him. It, it, it's a nice idea, but it's hard to do practically. Okay, so, so real quick, what does that look like to just be the type of person who's been with Jesus? All right, so to be, in order to be a person who has clearly been with Jesus, you have to be with Jesus regularly. <laughs> Mind blown, right? Like just super revolutionary, like you should spend time with Jesus. Okay, I, I know you've heard that before, right? Like if you've been around Christianity at all, you've had someone tell you, hey, like you should like read your Bible, you should pray, you should spend time with Jesus. But here's the deal, so often the battle of Christianity is not learning something new, it's learning to actually do what you know you should do. Or it's learning to actually believe the things that you say you believe. We are people that are starving for time with our creator, time for Jesus, but it's hard for us to actually get that. So let me give you just a quick couple reasons why that's hard. Okay, I think the first one is we've sort of put Jesus into this really small box in our life. So we have like this corporate stuff that we do. We come to church, we do connection group, or maybe you get up and you read your Bible. You have like this, this quiet time or whatever that is, and you do that, and then you sort of leave, and you just live no different from an atheist the rest of the day. Here's why. Because we haven't learned the discipline of worshiping Jesus in all of life. The discipline... Notice I said that on part, it doesn't just happen, the discipline of worshiping Jesus in all of life. Guys, kids know how to live, right? So, okay, so the second you do something with or for a kid, what do they want? They want you to do it again immediately, right? Like every time I see my niece Fallon, I pick her up and I throw her in the air because I'm the guy that doesn't know how to play with kids, so I just throw them. And I, I make parents nervous, but I haven't dropped one yet. It's fine. So I pick her up. I throw her. I grab her. We spin around, right? I put her down. I'm like gassed. I'm winded at this point. I'm not used to this life yet. And, uh, and then she's, what does she say? Do it again. So I pick it up. I do it again. And she's still not bored. Do it again. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This was so old, like halfway through the first time we did it, right? But who's right in that scenario? Who knows something about life? The kid, actually, not us. Why? Because they've learned the discipline of enjoying simple good gifts in their life, and it doesn't get old, it doesn't get bored, because they're not better than it. What if we were the type of people that in just normal daily life, we were like, God, do it again. 
Like what if you were walking down the street and you, you saw a leaf fall to the ground and you actually paid attention to it and you were like, God, that was amazing, do it again. What if we were the type of people that, that spent time with Jesus and enjoyed him and were amazed by him through his creation, not just in the morning when we're reading our Bible, but when we're driving to work, when we're having lunch with a coworker, when, when we're sitting down with our family at night? What if we were the type of people that were just enjoying him then? The second thing that keeps us from this is just busyness. And I don't have time to, to totally unpack this, but here's what's true. You'll prioritize whatever you love. You prioritize whatever you love, and we only don't have time for things that we don't really care about. Now, let me just acknowledge, some of you are in a life phase where it's really hard to get like separate time with Jesus. Like you've got a million kids running around, you've got whatever's going on in your life. I know that there's certain life phases where that's really hard. Let me talk to husbands in particular just for a minute. And this is, this is true for wives or whatever. This is true for single, single people, but specifically to husbands. Are you thinking not only about how you can get consistent time with Jesus, but are you also thinking about how to make sure your spouse is getting that time? Like when's the last time that you came home and you took the kids, or if you don't have kids, that you started cleaning the house, you took care of everything that needed to get done, and you just gave your wife like extended time, hey, get out of the house, get a journal, get a Bible, go get hours with Jesus. Are you fighting for that for her and for you? Okay, so we gotta keep moving on, but there's so many reasons why it's hard for us to be with Jesus. But now I wanna kind of flip that, and I wanna say if we wanna know, be known as people who have just been with Jesus, what are the marks of that? What, what comes out of your life when you've just been with him. So I want to give you several like just kind of quick hit observations from the text about people who have been with Jesus, what their lives look like. First one, they embrace weakness. They embrace being ordinary. So look back at, at verse 13. The thing that they were so astounded by is that these guys who were powerfully demonstrating who Jesus was, it says they were uneducated common men. Okay, now what that doesn't mean is that they were stupid. Okay, like this is not advertising, like just being dumb. This is what it's saying is they were ordinary. They were just normal human beings. Ordinary people being used for extraordinary things means that Jesus gets the glory. And here's what that means for your life. Is that your weakness Right, like when, when you're unimpressive, your lack of gifts can actually be a benefit to the kingdom of God because God loves to use the weak to shame the strong. God used to love the weak to shame the strong. So when I thought about this, I thought about first, or 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you see like how radically countercultural that is? Like that is the opposite of almost everything you've been told your entire life. Like so not only can you be accepted in your weakness, but you actually can boast in it. Because it's through your general, like, unawesomeness that, 
that Jesus seems awesome. But let's be real. Does that sound like good news to you? No, like, do any of us actually want that? We want his power to be made perfect in our power. We want him to look good through us looking good. And so this is, our, this is our strategy in life is like every time there's this gap between like who we are and who we want to be or like who we are in comparison to someone else, we want to work really hard to kind of make up that gap, right? To, to make ourselves better or to at least like minimize our weaknesses or to, to pretend like we're not there. That will always be the case in your heart. That's what the human heart is like. But here's what's true. When you actually have been with Jesus, when you actually encounter him, you can't help but realize how pathetic your attempts at greatness are in comparison to his. And when you realize that, you can finally admit what's true of you and me, that you're not really that great, but that true greatness is found not in you being amazing, but someone else being amazing for you. And here's what that means is you can embrace weakness. You can give your weakness a big hug. It's fine, right? Like you can, you can own it. You don't have to be something that you're not. And here's what's true. What you boast in exposes who or what you rely on. So if you're boasting in you, you're relying on you. If you're boasting on Jesus, you're relying on him. Where's your boasting in your life? Like if I were just sort of to watch you live, what, like who would I think that you think is awesome? You? Someone else that you're comparing yourself to or Jesus? How has that played out in your life? All right, next mark of somebody who's been with Jesus, boldness, boldness. And not just like a personality type, okay? I'm not just talking about you're just like mean and you call that boldness. No, I'm talking about this, this supernatural thing that happens to you when you start to live boldly after you've met him. So let's look, let's just, well, think back on that story that we read at the beginning of this time. Right, so, so this is what happened, is Peter and John are brought before this council because they were preaching about Jesus and about the resurrection, right? And, and this council is composed of 71 people. So the, like picture like a small amphitheater that all of these guys are sitting around and then Peter and John walk in. And who are these guys? They are the most powerful religious leaders of the time. And not only religious, but they're also kind of political leaders, Right, so imagine that you walked into a room with Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, and, and Kirk Cousins. We'll throw him in too, same category. Um, so you walk into this room, you walk in with a, with a football, and you start playing Breeze's like tape, and you're like, man, you missed the slot receiver there, like that was a bad decision, like hey, let me show you how to grip it, you're really going to be able to spin it if you go like like that's what's happening is like these normal guys are telling these religious leaders or, or if football's not your thing, right? So like the food network, okay? And this is, this is, and look, this is, this is not sexist because given the choice between college game day on a Saturday morning and like pioneer woman, I think I'm going pioneer woman. Like I love the food network. 
Okay, so, so you walk in and Pioneer Woman's there and Bobby Flay's there and Jada's hanging out and you're like, let me teach you how to bake a souffle, right? <laughs> this is how it's done. Okay, that's what's happening in this situation. They're telling the experts how they should be living, but not only that, there's actually something even kind of crazier and more scary than that. I think that these guys, as they walked into this room, thought that they were maybe gonna die that day because they had just watched this group of men or a group of men like them kill Jesus, their best friend, for teaching the exact same message that they're teaching. I think they had to have been walking in going, this might be my last day on earth. And what do they do? They call them out on their sin and they preach to them about who Jesus is. What happened? Like, like this isn't, I, I know Paul's got like this reputation for being sort of a, a bold, crazy, but this is Peter. Like, Peter was so terrified of the consequences of being affiliated with Jesus that he couldn't even admit it to a little girl who asked him, not that long ago. And now he's proclaiming the gospel boldly to people who could kill him. What changed? It's not just that they're magically kind of no longer afraid. No, I don't think that's what boldness is. In fact, as soon as they leave this council, so they, they testify to Jesus, the council doesn't know what to do with them, and they just send them out. As soon as they leave, they go to their friends, and they ask their friends to pray for them. And what do they ask for, for prayer? They ask for prayer for boldness. Why? Because I think even though they just did this bold, crazy act, they're still afraid, and they know that they need help being bold. So what happened? Well, here's what happened, is that the Spirit of God had come upon them and they knew that the one who was in them is the one who's in control of everything, that he had control. Boldness comes not through a complete absence of fear, but through knowing that the one who is in you is in control. All right, so imagine a couple people skydiving. Has anybody been skydiving? Oh, wow, like a lot of you, okay. That's impressive. That has nothing to do with anything. I was just curious. So imagine two people skydiving, okay? And they get in the plane and the plane's taken off and they're, and they're starting to like look down at the ground and they start to feel that pit in their stomach, right? That fear. And some of you that have been skydiving are like, it's not scary. I'm not afraid. Yes, you were. Don't lie to yourself. So it's, it's gotta be scary, right? I don't know, but it has to be, right? So they feel that pit in their stomach and then imagine they get to like the cruising altitude, which I think is like 12,000 feet for people that skydive or somewhere in there. And so, so they're about to go skydiving and then they open up the plane door and these two people stand on the edge of the plane and they're looking down. Can you imagine how much they're freaking out on the inside? That's terrifying. Now it's about to escalate because there's only one parachute. Okay, so one guy gets a parachute, the other one doesn't. Now, the one that doesn't get the parachute, what is he doing? Freaking out right? Like grabbing onto the side of the plane, screaming for dear life, you're not getting me out of this plane. The guy that has the parachute, is he still afraid? Yeah, actually, because he's about to jump out of a plane at 12,000 feet. Like, I don't care if you have a parachute, that's still scary. But what does he do? Steps back, gathers himself, kind of coaches himself up, like this is going to be fine, I've got a parachute, I've been trained, and he jumps, now, what's the difference between those two people? This isn't rocket science. Like, one's got a parachute, 
the other one doesn't. Right? Here's why the one can step back and jump. Because faith in the parachute overcomes the fear of the jump. Right? Boldness is not the absence of fear, but trust in the presence of something that's stronger than whatever you're afraid of. What are you afraid of? Like what causes you to be anxious, to be timid in life? Because life with God is learning how to believe that he's stronger than whatever you're afraid of. God's in control, but here's what that doesn't mean, is that you'll never be afraid again. It's not like Jesus gets in the plane, turns it around, lands, and has you kind of sit on the ground and live this nice, safe life. This is life with Jesus, is you're about to jump out of a plane, and Jesus is like, yeah, go ahead and jump. He pushes you towards the edge, and he says, I want you to jump and trust me that I'll catch you. And that parachute is his promises to you. It's him saying, I'm good. I've got this. I'm in control. I love you. But the Christian life is not the absence of fear. It's over and over again, stepping onto the edge, looking over the edge, considering the consequences, and jumping, not because you're not afraid, but because you have a great God who's strong enough to catch you. And when you jump, it's evidence that he's strong. It's evidence that you believe that he's got you. But so many of us are living like the first guy. We're holding on to the side of the plane. We're, we're anxious. We're timid. We're afraid. And we're trying to manipulate life so that we're in control and we know that everything's fine and safe. And Jesus is saying, would you just trust me? I've got a better life for you outside of this plane. Would you just jump? Would you believe me that I'm good? Where do you need to be bold in your life? Maybe it's something simple like having that conversation with your spouse, right? Like maybe you've been avoiding that hard conversation because it's easier to just ignore it than have that hard conversation. Maybe you just need to say something or maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe it's your friend who's caught in sin and maybe you just need to get a little uncomfortable and actually say something to them, actually love them well enough to say something. Or the application from this text that is true for all of us is maybe you need to say something about your faith to people in your life. And here's the deal. God is in control of people's salvation, and that frees you up to be bold. If I was in control of my own salvation, I would be in trouble. Like, it, it would be over for me. And if I was in control of somebody else's salvation, I would be absolutely terrified to ever say a word to them. Because what if I messed it up? What if I'm not clear? What if I don't know how to answer a question? What if, what if I don't really share it right? And what if that person is separated from God forever because of me? I'd be terrified, but that's not the case. God is in control of their salvation. He's the one pursuing them, and he just wants you to come along for the ride. He invites you to be a part of it. Okay, like if you go back to the analogy, it's like you're standing on the edge of that plane and the first time you ever go, what do they do? They strap you to an instructor, right? Because you might get scared and freak out and forget to pull the cord. That person isn't going to. So you just get strapped in. You just enjoy the ride. They pull the cord when it's time. That's what it's like to share the gospel is you're just along for the ride. Jesus is in control and he just wants you to be a part of it. And that can free you up to be bold because you're not gonna mess this thing up. Jesus is too good for that. All right, next thing that's a marker of people who have been with Jesus, prayer. 
So as soon as they get out of the, the presence of this council, they go get their friends and they pray. And here's the deal. Prayer is like eating potato chips. Yes, that is what I said. Prayer is like eating potato chips. Once you get a taste of it, you can't help going back for more. Has anybody ever eaten one potato chip? Don't raise your hand if you have. That's just, that's weird. Don't acknowledge it. You can't just eat one potato chip. What do you do? You get like, you get like a handful and it's like, oh, this is all I'm going to eat. And then you walk away and you eat it, right? And then it's like, well, you know, just one more. This is salty and crunchy. Prayer is like salty and crunchy and delicious when you give it time. Okay, so this is just an observation from my life. I'm not actually pulling this from the text, okay? I want to be clear about that. But this is something I've seen in my life. Not the potato chip thing. That's clear that wasn't in the text. What I'm about to say (laughs) is, all right, so uh, this is what I've seen in my own life. As I go in spurts of prayer. So if I like start to pray a little bit less, it ends up kind of going all the way to almost like a total lack of prayer because I lose the taste for it. But when I re-engage with prayer, I remember how awesome it is, and then I just want more and more and more and more. Jumpstart prayer in your life. Here's one way to do it. Pray bold prayers and write down what you asked God for, and then have like a systematic process for reviewing that. And I know like not very many of you are going to do that, because that's how this works. But some of you will, and I think it's worth it. If you go back and look at everything that you've asked God for, here's what you're going to realize is that God is answering prayer like crazy in your life. And maybe it's not always how you ask him, but if you pay attention, you're going to see him responding to you in prayer. We're just often too distracted to actually notice it. So prayer. Okay, last mark of someone who's been with Jesus. Selfless community. Selfless community. So let me, let me read to you, starting in, we're back in Acts 4, uh, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Okay, what a beautiful picture of what human relationship should be like. Like, isn't that what we're all longing for instead of how divisive our world can tend to be? Isn't that just like an incredible picture of what life could be. I think we all in our souls, we want something like that. So what caused it? What caused them to have this this radical selflessness, this radical generosity? Well, it wasn't like they came to Christ and then just immediately didn't care about the stuff they had. It's not like they met Jesus and then were like, "Uh, I kind of like, hate myself, don't want to live a fun life, so I'm just going to give away all of my stuff. No, it's that they saw an investment opportunity and they decided to invest. So what, what's, what's investment? Investment is sacrificing something small now to get more out of it later. So why do people invest their money? Why do they sort of give away their money? Not because they hate money, but because they want more of it. They want to multiply it. 
Okay, that's what this community is doing. They're giving up something temporarily, so their house, their money, or maybe the thing that we need to pay attention to as Americans, their privacy, their individuality, their right to sort of living their own life without other people bothering them, they're, they're giving that up. Why? So that they can get something better later. They're giving it up out of joy because they know that they will get a massive return on that investment. And here's what they'll get as a return for honoring Jesus with their life. Eternity. Eternal life with Jesus forever. They gave up the temporary and material to gain the unfading and the eternal. And here's why that investment is amazing. So usually investments give you more of what you already had, right? That's how that works. You invest money to get more money back. But you invest in the kingdom of God and you get something categorically better than what you gave up. You give up money, you get eternal joy, Okay, so it would be like if you took your leftover pumpkins from Halloween, they're gonna rot anyway, you took them to a bank, the next day you came back and they gave you a Ferrari. You're like, I'm not a car person. Well, you can sell it and then you can buy whatever you want. Okay, either way, you give up something that's rotting and that is gonna, about to be useless to you to get something that's categorically better. Not only more of what they already had, but categorically better. That's the deal that Jesus offers you. You give him your temporary possessions, your life, your sin, whatever in your life is holding you back from a relationship with him, and he gives you eternity. And not just like something in the future, like eternity is breaking into the now. That's what's happening in Acts 4, is eternal life is starting to come into this community now. The life that they had always dreamed of was starting to happen in them. But here's the deal. There's only one way that this happens, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's nothing else that you can do to be saved other than trusting that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead for your sins. That was the only solution for your sin. That's the only remedy for your pain. That's the only thing worth really investing in. That's the only thing worth living for. Now you might be thinking, Jordan, I already know that. No, you don't. Or you would live differently. I would live differently. Like if I, if I really believed that that was true, my life would look different than it does. Instead of, but this is like, this is what's true of us. That instead of selfless community, we're hoarders. We use our resources to try and buy ourselves happiness. Instead of humble prayer, we're self-reliant and proud. We think that we've got this. Instead of faith, we stand back and we're, we're passive. We're full of fear. Instead of boasting in our weakness, we arrogant rely, arrogantly rely on our strengths and hide our weaknesses. And here's the deal. The solution to that problem is not just trying harder. It's not just looking at those marks of people who have been with Jesus and, and, and trying to do better at those things. That's not the application of the sermon. You can't become more bold by trying really hard to become bold. That's not how it works. Who are the people that have those things in their life? They're the people who have been with Jesus. 
If you get him, then you get everything else thrown in. So figure out how to reorient your life around him. Make actual decisions to change the patterns and the rhythms of your life so that you can be with him. And here's what will happen then. is through being with him, you will begin to live in a way that apart from faith in Christ, there's no other explanation for your life. Let me pray. Jesus, I want that to be true of me. I want that to be true of us, that apart from you, there's no explanation for what's happening in our life. There's no explanation for the way that we can walk away from sin, the way that we can impact people, the way that we can live supernatural lives of bold faith in super ordinary ways, normal like daily life ways where we just trust you day to day. Would that be true of us? But also help us not to just chase that mark. Help us to not just chase like the life we wanna live, help us to chase you to see that being with you is the end goal and that other stuff just kind of comes along. And so this week, would you help us to figure out what that looks like to just be with you, to be the type of people that stand in kind of childlike amazement at what you're doing in the world and at your creation and at your goodness to us, that know what it's like to have the discipline to just worship you in every facet of our lives. And would we live changed lives as a result? Would we be different because we've met you Jesus, and when we fail to be that way, inevitably, help us not to get discouraged and give up, but just to come back to you and to remember that you're the one that gives that stuff anyway, and so if we come back to you, we can have life in you. Give us faith, give us confidence in that forgiveness, that life, that eternity that you've offered us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.